What up, guys? It's JP from The Chase Down, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben. What's going on, everybody? Welcome. And today, we're going to preview the semi-conference finals. So we have all the results of those finals, but we want to take a look back at some of the fun, uh, series and how they went. Um, we're going to start with the Celtics in Milwaukee. Clearly, we're from Boston. If we have an opportunity to talk about the Celtics, we should probably take it. So the Celtics advance in game seven and make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. And it was an absolute dogfight this series. Um, the Bucks basically were just getting their ass dragged by Giannis by himself. And then the Celtics played great team basketball throughout the entire series. Um, and the Celtics prevailed. What were your thoughts on the, that series? There was a, a bunch of things that I want to highlight, but I'm going to start with the Bucs. Uh, I think there's some issues that I have with Budenholzer as a coach that I think were very, very apparent in this series. <clears throat> Grayson Allen and George Hill are two dudes who did not deserve 20 minutes a game in these playoffs. Grayson Allen much more than George Hill because I, I respect what George Hill does. Uh, those last couple of games, Grayson Allen got cooked on practically every defensive possession. Uh, and then offensively, he did nothing. He missed almost every shot he took in the last three games. Um, I don't understand. There's a thing that Budenholzer does where he has a plan and he sticks to it regardless of the way each game goes. And those decisions, the decisions to not play guys like Javon Carter uh, over Hill or Allen, and the decision to leave Brooke Lopez and drop coverage, lost them this series. I don't know how the game goes, how these series go if Brooke Lopez steps out on Grant Williams in game seven and doesn't let him take 18 three-point attempts. Um, but, you know, it would have changed. We just saw the same strategy over and over and over again by the Bucks, and the Celtics were able to pull it out. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Bud is generally a good head coach. Um, he's been an offensive mastermind of some sorts since he's kind of really been in the league. It's on defense where the issues happen with him. Um, people know that he's most likely not going to change his scheme. Um, and having George Hill guard Jason Tatum for the majority of game six and game seven just seemed like such a mistake. Um, George Hill is a feisty defender, but he's very old and probably six to seven inches shorter than Tatum. Um, Drew Holiday played a lot on him as well but there just shouldn't be an instance where George Hill is trying to lock up Jason Tatum multiple possessions in a row it just shouldn't happen um the Bucks really really struggled with that aspect of defense and just adjustments in general it's crazy when you go and you look at those box scores for game six and seven um because I think the highest three-point shooting percentage from anybody on the Bucks was Giannis he went three for seven in the last two games. Uh, Pat Connaughton was okay, um, but then when it mattered, he couldn't hit his shots. Wesley Matthews couldn't hit his shots. Again, Grayson Allen took a lot, missed a lot. Um, Drew Holiday, for as inefficient as he is as a scorer, he hits his threes. Um, he really just, everything he throws up in the lane seems like a miss almost every time. And then you go and you look at his three-point percentage game by game, and it's the only thing keeping his points from looking normal. Like, there, he's efficient from three all the time. But if Giannis is your best three-point shooter over the last two games of a series, you're screwed. Uh, he did everything he could, dude. He put up a 44-20-6 stat line. That's legendary. That does not happen. Uh, and it wasn't even enough. Um, 
25, 20, and nine in the game seven that he lost. He sucked in the second half, but you got to give a lot of credit to the Celtics defense for wearing him down and getting him gassed at the second half of that game seven. Yeah, and I think a part of it too was they knew the role players weren't going to hit any shots. Like, I don't know how much it was they wore Giannis down rather than they didn't have to worry about anybody else. Like they could just pack the paint and not pay attention to Pat Connaughton in the corner, who's usually a 40% three-point shooter, but couldn't buy a bucket. Uh, same goes for Grayson Allen. Same goes for all of their shooters. None of them were threatening the Celtics. So I think it just made it so much easier for them to just say, hey, like Giannis is really the only issue here. If we just pour all of our resources into stopping him, the surrounding parts can't beat us. Um, and we saw it. I mean, the role players of the Bucks fell apart. They were so bad. And that's my gripe with the Bucs. Um, it was weird for me this series because I am in love with Giannis. I just think it's so cool that we get to watch like a generational talent. But to watch him surrounded by bums who literally couldn't do anything drove me a little bit crazy. It just, it, I texted you this. It felt eerily similar to the 2018 LeBron season where it was literally like an injured Isaiah Thomas um, and like old J.R. Smith as LeBron's like best cohorts and it was just like how the hell are they even winning these games and when it went to the finals like J.R. Smith making that dumbass decision decision in game one after LeBron put up 51 it's just like there's nothing he can do and that's kind of how how I felt with Giannis in game six and in game seven I was just like if Giannis can't finish a series with 44, 20, and six, he can't, he, he just can't do it. Yeah. So yeah, it was very, very frustrating. It's fair. And we'll get to the Celtics in a second. We're really, we're going in on the Bucks here, but I saw a thing on Twitter that's so true. LeBron and Steph Curry have really changed people's perceptions of how far great players are expected to go in the playoffs. This is what, like, throughout most of NBA history, this is what happens. Guys in their prime with good enough teams, with good regular season records, come into the playoffs, and they lose. They don't make it to the finals every single year. Uh, LeBron, I think, has really twisted people's perception of what is considered successful, uh, you know, career-wise when it comes to playoff success. Um, certainly with Middleton in this series, probably the Bucs are uh, more favored than they were. Um, the last thing I want to dog on with the Milwaukee Bucks is they chose not to play the last regular game, regular season game of the year. And they chose to give the Celtics home court advantage in this game seven. And th it looks really, really stupid now that they did that. Yeah. It's, it's like kind of bad karma to duck your opponent. It, I, it just feels that way. We, we don't see it oftentimes like in the first round, but later on, usually you find something that's like, oh shit, like maybe if they just won the game. Um, we're seeing it with, yeah, we saw it with the Bucks. Like they were so terrified of the Nets and the Nets kind of, I mean, they made the games competitive with the Celtics. They were all close, but I mean, I'm pretty sure the Bucks handled them, right? Yeah. So, I mean, then they have game seven in their house and it, it all came down to them winning the last game of the season. Um, it, it looks like a pretty big blunder right now, but I know we've been trashing on the Bucks, so I want to give them a little bit of credit as well. For this to be a seven game series without a four-time all-star in Chris Middleton, who is a 50-40-90 guy, 20 points per game, 
can run the pick and roll, can spot up shoot, can create his own shot. Not to mention he torches the Celtics. And he, he's been notorious for playing well against the Celtics. To still make that a seven-game series is wildly impressive to me. Um, I think when the Bucs lost him initially, I kind of viewed them as like, they, the Celtics should have won this series. It, it, this isn't like a super achievement. They, the team they were facing had their second best player down. It's the equivalent of the Celtics losing Jalen Brown for a series. I mean, that's a huge fucking deal. The Celtics should have won, but Milwaukee made it so hard for them. I give them a world of credit for that. I agree. Giannis's stats over this series are unreal. 34 points, 15 rebounds, seven assists a game over a seven-game series. That's ridiculous, and it's really the thing that kept them in every single game. The game six that the Celtics blew in the last couple of minutes, Giannis hit one of the biggest threes he's ever hit in his career, blood draining down his face after Connaughton elbowed him in the eye. That was ballsy. Um, I can respect it a lot more now that we beat him, um, but that was ballsy from him. He just took over at the end of that game, and that's what he does, man. If he just had... 10% more health. If Grayson Allen doesn't go 0 for 6 multiple games in a row and is unable to guard a traffic cone, um, the series might be different because the Celtics threw away that game six. It looked like it was an easy win. They were up 14 in the fourth, and then it was over. Um, let's move to the Celtics, though. Let's talk about what the Celtics did right. Jason Tatum had an excellent series overall. He had one really, really big stinker that he followed up with 46, 9, and 4. Um, so I, you know, I'm nothing but impressed with what Jason Tatum did this series because they were playing him physical. They were playing him a lot like the way the Celtics played KD, bumping him on every single possession. Javon Carter was up in his face, always denying him entry passes, just making it difficult to involve him in the offense. Um, but you said it, man, it was a team effort. Al Horford stepped up. Grant Williams stepped up. Peyton Pritchard had some big threes in that game seven. Marcus Smart was pretty solid. It was a really all-around great series from everybody. Yeah, it really was. Um, the Celtics are playing incredible team basketball right now, and it's it's eerily similar to, like, the Spurs of a while ago. The Spurs were a little bit different because they had Tim Duncan, who is, like, a top eight player of all time, and the Celtics clearly don't have that, but he was at the end of his run, Tim Duncan in 2014. Like he was on his way out, but he was still great at moving the ball. He was great in the post and he was just a fantastic teammate. And it's kind of like Al Horford. Like he's just Al Horford being able to put up two amazing games back to back really kept the Celtics alive. Um, and then Tatum with an unbelievable historic performance. I think he had finished the game with like 46. Mm -hmm. Um Everyone's playing their role. Marcus Smart played great in game seven after a horrible uh, fumbling of a game just a few nights before. So I, I just think with the coaching of Ime Udoka, who I think, I mean, we say this all the time, but like how many top five coaches are there in the league? It seems like there's a million top five coaches in the league just because there's so many, but he really stands out to me as like a guy who created that created an identity for his team and it's not going anywhere. Like they play the same way every single game. Ball movement and defense is how they're going to beat you. And they do it at the highest levels. So I think the Celtics are doing a great job. I think for me personally, I think it's hard to find a team that's going to stop them from here on out. I don't know how you feel, but for me that it just seems like they're on a roll. 
I definitely feel the same way. I think the finals will be a lot tougher than the Eastern Conference finals. Um, but this defense, man, seems historically great. Like if it holds up, if it continues and they make it to the finals and they play well in the finals, this defense does seem historically great. They held the Bucks in game seven to 81 points, the reigning champs. Um, it's it's amazing. The, the scores of all of these games, the Nets games rarely went over 100. Um, it's, it's really crazy the amount of effort that is put in constantly on the defensive end by the Celtics. I'm very excited for the Celtics Heat series. Um, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but I just can't say enough good things about how intense the defense for the Celtics been, have been and how effective it was. Yeah, and for negatives for the Celtics, there's not really much. Like, there's not much to complain about. Like, that one game where Marcus Smart reverted back to 2015 Marcus Smart, like, that was really tough to watch. Yeah. And that's why I've had mixed feelings about Marcus Smart his entire career because the little things he provides are fantastic, but sometimes his ego gets a little too big. But he came right back the next game and proved why he's such a valuable piece and probably a championship-level player. And, you know, like I said with the Al Horford thing, if you have random role players being able to pop up for 30 so Jason Tatum doesn't have to hit every bucket or Jalen Brown doesn't have to be super efficient, it's just tough to beat. They're so deep and everyone's contributing. I just, they, they're rolling. Yeah, and the shots, the, the percentages are really efficient for our top six guys. Um, I want to go to the Bucks though. What do you think is next for Milwaukee? Well, the thing I think Giannis needs to work on is a low post game that involves a lot more fadeaways and hooks, something that he can expend a lot less energy and still get the points that he needs to get. Because I think part of the reason he is so gassed in the second half every time is because of the amount of energy it takes on every single offensive possession that he has. He has no, you know, he does some of those mid-range shots. And I think if you sprinkle those in, that's fine. But I wouldn't make that a focal point. I think if he got some sort of low post game that involved a lot less running through people, um, he could save some of his energy for the second half. I agree with you. I think even if he doesn't change, he's completely fine. I didn't see the fatigue you saw as much, I guess. I think in game seven, which I think was probably the only game you could really kind of question the fatigue, I think it was more game planning than the Celtics than Giannis running out of legs. Um, so I do agree with you. I think a post game, like a more reliable post game would be helpful for him just so he, you're right, so he doesn't have to barrel through people. I think that's just a better way to avoid the charge calls he got. We talked about this when we hung out to watch game seven. Like, I think he had 20 charge calls in just the playoffs alone. Like, that is an extreme number. So you're basically getting two fouls a game just on offense. So they count on him defensively. It puts him in trouble. Um, if he could just get a reliable hook shot, maybe that would save him in terms of fouls, but in terms of just his energy, I think he's an alien. He's kind of like LeBron. Like it really does not matter how he gets his points. Like he's going to be able to play at a level. Nobody in the league can play at for 48 minutes straight. That's, that's true for the most part. Uh, he had a bunch of ugly layup misses in that second half that I'm blaming on fatigue and some ugly like turnarounds and then just whipping them off the backboard with no chance of them ever going in. Uh, and the first half, you see a lot smoother plays from him on that side. So who knows? It could have just been a couple of unlucky uh, bounces in a row. Um, 
but yeah, a low post game, if he could work on that, you know, it's crazy to think he could get even better. Uh, but if he has that as well, that opens up his drive again. If he has a reliable turn and fade, people are going to have to respect that. And then he can just keep a pivot foot down and go dunk again. The, the dunks that he makes where he stands like nine feet away from the basket and he's still able to dunk the ball. Nobody else in the NBA can do that. No. And I think it's, it's interesting. Like for a guy who just averaged 35, what was it? 16 and seven mm-hmm. over a series, there's room to improve. I think that's hilarious. Um, he is just, what we're witnessing is crazy. Um, I will never take it for granted. Uh, granted, like, I just think he's, he's something we need to cherish. And I think, like you said, like if he does figure out a little bit more spacing, maybe like a turnaround jumper or just a more reliable hook, I think things open up even more for him, which is just crazy to think about. Definitely. He will be back. The Bucks will be back in full swing next season. There's, there is no doubt about it. I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. I feel like if Chris Middleton is healthy alongside Giannis putting up 35, 17, and 7, I don't think it's – I mean, If you could count on an extra 20 points a game on one of your scores, yeah, absolutely the Bucks would have been a lot more formidable. And, you know, if it goes to game seven, they probably take it. I think almost certainly. Yeah. I think the Celtics are, it's kind of like a Cinderella story for the Celtics right now. So that's hard momentum to stop. But I just think when you literally have one of the best players to ever touch a court playing at his peak level, he'll ever play at. That's just in NBA history. That's a thing. Many teams don't get overcome, but the Celtics, they got lucky and they took advantage of it and they deserve all the credit in the world for being able to take advantage of it. They've taken down two top five players in the league right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you have to give them a lot, a lot of credit for that. Um, let's move to Miami-Philly. 42 series for Miami. Jimmy Butler continues to prove that he is one of the best playoff players in basketball. His averages are 28, 8, and 6, uh, and which is just unreal. He's hitting threes again, uh, which, I, you know, apparently he just saved them for the playoffs. Good on him. I The defense has been excellent from Miami. Um Miami, you can give a lot of credit to, but I also want to talk a little bit about how Joel Embiid sounded at the end of that series, how depressed and how tired he was of losing. Um, I understand feeling that way. Like, I, I totally get why he feels that way. It's just tough to hear from a leader the sort of things that he was saying at the end of that game. I'm with you. I think, I think, I think Doc Rivers is a horrible head coach. I think Daryl Morey is about to make one of the biggest mistakes in NBA history. And I think Joel Embiid's a top five player who unfortunately is stuck with both of this, both of these people. Um, If I was Joel Embiid, I'd be pretty upset too. But as a leader, like just as, I don't know, it's tough to see him point. It's weird because he's right. Like the things he is saying are correct. But when you put your organization on blast like that in front of the media, I don't know if anything ever becomes good out of it. Um, He openly called out Daryl Morey by praising the signings of Andre Drummond and (laughs) Seth Curry, um, who Daryl Morey shipped out for James Harden. And when asked about James Harden, he basically just said, like, he's not that dude anymore. Like, who you saw in Houston is not who he is today. He's a passer, he's a facilitator, and he no longer can score. This is your best player saying this. This is a top five player in the league saying this. 
it doesn't look good for the organization. And I understand he's probably trying to put pressure on Maury to like make the right decision coming this summertime, but man, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you can say that two years in a row. It's been two years in a row. He did the same shit last year. Yeah. And we saw how it worked out for him last year. Yeah, it is. It's, it's tough to see from somebody who's supposed to lead the team. The only silver lining, and I don't even know if it's a silver lining is I believe a hundred percent that this is how Joel Embiid is in his own locker room to his own guys' faces. Yeah. Um, I don't think that he is, you know, just hyping up everybody and just like mindless optimism in the locker room. I think he's telling them you don't play hard enough. You don't do this. You don't do that. And we need you to, um, but it doesn't change it, man. There's just some things you do not say to the media saying that we don't have enough tough guys on our team. Like he was talking, he was praising PJ Tucker and he was saying like, we don't have anybody like that. Somebody who's going to die for every single ball. Who's going to put in 110% effort in all plays. Um, even if that's true. And it is true. It is true. It is true. You can't say it, man. Giannis. I mean, Giannis is the ultimate leader. Um, takes every bit of blame on his own shoulders, doesn't put it onto anybody else. And I think that lifts up guys a lot more than Joel Embiid saying, yeah, my, my teammates suck this series. No, I'm with the, yeah, I I agree with everything you're saying. I think (laughs) he's right. That's what it all, it's so weird. He's just absolutely correct. Like Hubie Brown, while he was calling game six in that series was like, he was ready to throw up because of the 76ers effort level. Like he, he's been watching basketball for like 60 years. And he was saying how it was one of the worst efforts he's ever seen in a playoff game. And like Tyrese Maxey is barking at James Harden on the bench about like, why aren't you trying? This is why one, you should never tie your bandwagon to James Harden. I called it once the fucking trade was made. He's a bum in the playoffs. He, he'll never achieve anything in the playoffs. Um, but if you're Joel Embiid, and you've had such an injury history, and your ultimate goal is to win a title in Philly, which I'm assuming is his ultimate goal. Like, how far away are you from that? Because Tyrese Maxey's a young player, so he's going to get better. Tobias Harris, he had a really good postseason, actually. So this is probably the best you're going to get from him. But then you have $40 million going to James Harden, who's a bum. And you have no depth on your team either. It's like, man, it doesn't look great for his title chances. And he had to deal with injuries this postseason. Um, he had that weird thumb ligament. Um, he literally broke his face um, and had a concussion in the Miami series. So it's like, I don't know. It always seems like there's something in Joel Embiid's way. I feel horrible for him. Yeah, it definitely sucks that he was so banged up in this playoffs. Because, you know, torn ligament in your shooting thumb, a broken face and a concussion, that seems like too much to overcome, um, especially considering this team is Joel Embiid. Uh, he is the engine offensively and defensively. And if he's not at hundred percent, the rest of the team just follows. Unfortunately. Um, I don't know how they get more depth because nobody's going to trade for this washed version of James Harden. He still is one of the best passers in basketball. I, yeah. I will keep saying that um, the effort is absolutely gone on defense. It's, you know, it, it was, was never, never really, it was never really there, but there were moments where he really tried. Um, he doesn't have the ability to, even if he wanted to, but you know, we've seen the play over and over and over again of him throwing that turnover that bam out of bio catches and then bam out races James Harden from like three steps behind him to the other rim. James Harden just lets him go. lets him take the layup. Um, 
I, I don't understand it, man. I don't understand how you can't just how, how you like give up like that in a playoff game. Um, who knows what's coming next for them, but I just want to go to the Miami heat real quick because they were great. Yes. Um, as much as Philly lost this series, Miami heat took every advantage they could get. Jimmy Butler led the heat in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks in this series. He did everything. Uh, he is just such a monster offensively and defensively. It's so obvious that he wants it more than almost anybody on the floor at all times. Um, Bam Adebayo played great in the minutes where he wasn't guarded by Joel Embiid. Tyler Hero is all right, um, but it really is just Jimmy Butler putting the team on his back and carrying them to victories. Yeah, and we've seen him do it before. Um, I know the bubble run was the bubble run, and it was really weird, and we had some strange results from that. But he is that guy. He is that guy. He's always been a good postseason performer. Uh, he had one awful series against Milwaukee, but other than that, like he's been very consistent in the postseason. Um, people don't, I feel like sometimes we forget about how good he is at running the pick and roll and passing. Like he's legitimately great at setting up other players and he's a great defender too. I mean, he is a very, very versatile player. And I just, Miami's got a very interesting team to face. Um, if we're going to look forward to the Eastern Conference Finals, if we're ready for that, um, I think Boston, I know Boston has the best player in the series, but I think Jimmy Butler matches up pretty well against Jason Tatum. Um, like if Tatum's trying to guard Butler, he can pass or he can score on Tatum and then vice versa. Like Tatum can definitely get his buckets on him, but it's it's a great matchup. Like that'll be fun to watch throughout the entire series. So that's going to be really exciting, that one-on-one -on -one matchup. Definitely. Jimmy Butler is also one of the strongest wings in basketball. Um, he is just compact as fuck. He's just not somebody who you can move off of his spot. The reason he's so good at driving is because when he sets a path, he makes it. He does not get bumped off of that path. Doesn't matter who hits him. Um, so that's it's going to be a really interesting series. I think the Celtics match up better offensively. What we saw against the Bucs this series was the Celtics were just given three-pointer after three-pointer to take and make if they if they could. Um, they kept Brooke and Giannis in the post, and the Bucks strategy was just, you're going to kill us by threes if you beat us, and we did that. Um, the paint is a lot more open against Miami. Bam Adebayo is still an excellent rim protector, uh, but he's someone that with Alan Grant, you can pull him away from the basket a little bit. Um, I, the, the heat don't go with the buck strategy of drop coverage at all times. So there will be some of that. Al Horford will probably get a couple open corner threes, but Bam is going to have to actually respect those guys. Um, and so I think the lane will be a little bit more open for Tatum and Brown. Tatum really didn't do very well scoring inside against the bucks. Uh, it's hard to blame him, but that is how things open up. Jason Tatum gets a step on his man, gets into the paint. And then two guys collapse on him and he finds the open man. I think that sort of strategy is going to be there a lot more than it was in the last series. Yeah, you're definitely right because the heat switch BAM on everything. Um, BAM is one of the best perimeter defending bigs in the league. It's him, mm -hmm. Evan Mobley, Draymond, and that's kind of their own group. Um, he's going to cause issues on the perimeter but what you're saying about the paint is a hundred percent true because 
Milwaukee's one of the tallest teams in the league. They have seven one Brooke Lopez and six foot eleven Giannis on the court together at all times. That's just hard to score against when you're trying to drive to the rim. Um, but the three pointers, like you mentioned, were wide open for the Celtics. It's going to be the complete inverse this series. The three point shot is going to be hard to get off. But if you make your way to the rim and just keep driving, you're probably going to find some openings just because Bam is going to be out on the perimeter a decent amount. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Celtics adjust to that because they've been so used to getting these wide open threes for basically the first two series because of the way Brooklyn plays defense, which is they don't play it at all. (laughs) And then (laughs) Milwaukee's scheme. So it should be interesting to see how they adjust. I think game one might go to Miami just based off of like, what the fuck? Like the Celtics just don't know what to do against the level of intensity and the difference of scheme. We definitely see, I have seen a lot of changes. Um, Game one, two, three, four from Ime Udoka. He makes adjustments uh, for the next game. I definitely can see the Celtics dropping game one. There's a good chance Marcus Smart doesn't play because he's got a foot sprain. Um, and Rob Williams still has a bone bruise on his knee and it's not like in the past three days that's gotten any better. So he might play, but it'll be at 70, 75% at best. Uh, cause that shit's painful. Bone bruises like that hurt. And if it's on the knee, if it's close to the, like the joint, um, he's probably going to feel that when he moves it always. Um, so that's, that is going to be really tough for him. The thing about the heat is you, you said it, the switchability, Bam can do it. Jimmy can do it. Max Struess, who's an undrafted guy who's been incredible for them. He can switch on to pretty much anybody one through four. Um, he's not excellent at the bigger guys, but he still does it. PJ Tucker, big, solid body, plays with more effort and energy than pretty much anybody in the league. Gabe Vincent's even a dude who's switchable. Um, offensively and defensively, the Heat, every single player is so competent. Yeah, and I think if you were to create a defender for Tatum – it's probably Giannis one and then PJ Tucker too. Like PJ Tucker is so stout and so tough. He's going to be in Jason Tatum shorts all night long. And he's too big to kind of throw around. Like Tatum's not going to be able to bully him whatsoever. Um, I can see a potential Tatum settling for jump shots over PJ Tucker. Yes. Storyline coming. Um Tatum loves his jump shot. It's usually very effective. So I understand why he does, but I think when Tatum's his best is when he gets to all three levels, when he goes to the rim, shoots the mid range and the three ball. Um, And an an aspect of the series I want to ask you about is Duncan Robinson and Tyler hero. So these two players get picked on, on defense, like crazy. And I think Eric Spolstra is probably the best coach in the entire league. So I'm curious to see that, like, will he just match like Peyton Pritchard and Derek White's minutes with Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero? Like he just won't allow them to get picked on. Like he'll just wait until the Celtics put out their lesser offensive players to kind of put them in and just rain threes. Um, what, what do you think about that matchup and how the heat will have to use Tyler hero or Duncan Robinson? It's going to be interesting. Tyler hero gets a lot of minutes. He gets about 27 a game or he did last series. He plays pretty consistently. Um, the Celtics last series abused the drop coverage constantly. Every play that they, you know, if it's a set play almost every single time they're bringing Brooke Lopez's man out to set a screen for Marcus smart. And then they're flaring out and they're figuring something out from there. I can see, 
you know, especially in the fourth quarter, Tyler Hero's in the game, they're going to abuse that switch as much as they can. Uh, Duncan Robinson only played three games. I don't know if he had injury concerns or what it was, um, but he only played three games out of the six for against Philly. Um, you know, he's going to be abused on defense as well. I think it's definitely going to be a thing where if Duncan Robinson can't produce offensively, he will not play. Tyler Hero is still a dude. Even if he misses the shot, he's got the confidence and the resume at this point to where you have to guard him from the three-point line and you have to respect him regardless of what his percentages are. Um, Duncan Robinson's been a little bad this this year. Yeah. Um, so I don't think he'll get a lot of minutes. Tyler Hero is going to have to, you know, bust his ass defensively because they're going to try to abuse him. I think he'll still get his normal amount of minutes. Um, but you know, game by game, it may change if abusing Tyler hero in a pick and roll works, uh, Eric's bolster is going to think of something. new. Yeah, exactly. And I think the way Miami views it also is Max Struess might just be the better Duncan Robinson. Um, How crazy is that? man? Yeah. Yeah. They paid him $70 million and then find his replacement out of the G league. It's like, holy shit. Um, but he's just bigger and better on defense. He's a little lesser of a three-point shooter, but if you get the defensive like upside of him compared to Duncan Robinson, you take that every day. Definitely. So I don't know. This is going to be a really interesting series. I, I think I'm going to have Celtics in six. I will but, definitely go the same. Yeah, but I think it's going to be like a dog fight. Miami doesn't strike me as a team that's going to get smacked. Like no. I think they're going to really, really try every single game. I, d- I definitely agree with you. There's a semi X factor that we haven't really mentioned for Miami. Uh, and that's Kyle Lowry. He was dealing with injuries yeah. at the start of the Philly series. He's still a respectable player with a great uh, offensive game. His shooting isn't there uh, over the last couple of months, but assist wise, he's always good at finding the right reads. Um, defensively, he's a dog. Um, I'm not sure if he'll be that big of a factor in this series, but it's definitely something where we're going to have to wait and see. He was really bad in the two games he played against Philly. So I just, I don't know what to expect from him. From what I understand, he was hurt in yeah. those games. Um, and I think they just decided, Hey, like, instead of playing you, like, let's just get you healthy for the Eastern conference finals. So he should look better. Um, but yeah, he's an interesting player. I, I think he's Marcus Smart's like long lost twin or some shit. The way they play basketball, they both just throw themselves on the ground all game long and hit timely shots. That's kind of their thing. Um, but I think another X factor that we should talk about is Bam offensively, not as a defender, offensively. Because in the bubble, he fucked us up. Mm-hmm. The pick and roll he just got it whenever he felt like it in the bubble series. And I just remember being like, how can we not stop this? Because we had competent defenders. Then we have a much better team defense now, but I mean, against Boston in the bubble, he shot 61% from the floor and averaged 22 points, 11 rebounds and five assists in 39 minutes a game. Like he was, he was virtually unstoppable. So how do you think we approach him this series? He's always someone that's so tough to scheme against. 39 minutes a game is really impressive. And I expect that sort of level to keep up against us in this series. He does match up pretty well. Um, Having bigger bodies in Alan Grant is going to help. Having Rob on the help side, if he's healthy, is going to help. 
But Bam knows even if the shot that he's got isn't the most efficient, he knows how to pass to open shooters. He's good at it. Um, so he's not going to take a lot of uncontested or a lot of contested shots, a lot of difficult shots, uh, especially if he gets doubled, especially if we have people trying to help out of pick and rolls. Uh, I don't know if there is a secret to the Celtics beating Bam um, other than just, you know, hoping Al Horford one-on-one can do as, as good a job as anybody. I imagine Grant will be stuck on PJ. Um, there'll be a lot of switches and Bam is really good at, as soon as there's a little guy on me, I'm going right by you and I'm done. Um, so Al's going to need to be on high alert always doesn't matter who he's switched on to. Um, Rob healthy wise is an X factor on Bam. If Rob can lurk on the weak side and come up for those big timely blocks that he does so well, on Bam driving to the hoop. I think that would be a big success. Otherwise, it's really just going to have to be hold your ground one-on-one, which is not easy to do against Bam. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be paying attention uh, at Bam all series long because he's just given the Celtics trouble every single time we've played him. Um, I don't know if Ime is going to be able to cook up a solution to that, but it should be interesting. But we both have Celtics in six, right? Yes, definitely I have Celtics in six. All right, well, let's move on to the West then. And we had Golden State versus – actually, no, let's do the more fun one. Uh, Phoenix and Mavs, it went seven. The Mavs, both of us got that prediction right. They won in seven in crazy fashion. Uh, they once held a 46-point lead against the Phoenix Suns. They held the Suns to 10 points in the second quarter. Domination from start to finish. Lucas scored as many points as the Suns in the first half. It was just ridiculous. And Chris Paul sucked. Devin Booker sucked. DeAndre Ayton had a fight with Monty Williams and only played 17 minutes in game seven. You can book it that he will not be a Phoenix Sun next year. Just turmoil. I think the championship window was slammed shut by Luka and the Mavs. Yeah, that was, you know, if it was an okay loss in game seven, if they lose by eight or six um, and they fight hard the whole time, nothing happens to this team. They still retain DeAndre Ayton and they still just run it back the same way they did last year. Um, this was ridiculous. It was the lowest scoring first half of a playoff game ever. Nobody has ever scored 27 and a half of a playoff game. It was really like wild. We were watching it live. And there was six minutes to go in the second half. And I think the Suns had 27 points. And then they didn't get another point for the rest of the half. Uh, it was pathetic. Chris Paul was targeted defensively in pick and rolls more in this series than he has ever been targeted in his entire career in the playoffs. Uh, and he's 37 years old and six feet tall. So he got abused. Luca backed him into the post over and over and over again. He was just being mean to him. And for all the shit that the Phoenix Suns have been talking uh, this season and this playoffs, I loved to see it. They quickly made themselves, when Chris Paul joined the team, for as talented as they are at their best, they're one of the least likable teams to a neutral fan because of the flopping and the whining and the shit talk when they're up. Um Luca had maybe like, this is going to be an all time quote from Luca walking out of that game five and saying like, oh, everybody wants to act tough when they're up. We'll see. And then he does that. He puts up 34 a game in the last two games. Um, 
it was incredible, man. I, I did not see that sort of a win coming. Even in that game seven, I was thinking, like, before it started, I was telling you, like, I'm not confident that the Mavs are going to win. And then they came out and just blew the roof off of them. That was awesome. Yeah, we're seeing, like, legendary stuff from Luca right now. Like, this is this is who could potentially be the next face of the league when Giannis is gone. Because it's going to be Giannis for the next few years. But after that, like, it will be Luca's league. Um, what he did in that game seven was ridiculous. I mean, he bullied everyone. He was so efficient. Um, and then as a playmaker too, like you just can't really stop him. He's going to make the right pass. Even if it doesn't lead to an assist, he he's fine being in a hockey assist guy. And then Spencer Dinwiddie out of nowhere gives you a 30 point game. And then Jalen Brunson gives you his 20 points. Like those three guards, single-handedly sent Phoenix packing and you know I think Chris Paul really needs to be talked about here Chris Paul averaged 13 points four rebounds and six assists it was on good efficiency but I'm sorry like if you're the best player on a championship caliber team that is a ridiculous performance um reports came out conveniently after game seven that he had been dealing with a quad injury I don't know. Like, I it, it, how convenient is that, that after they lose a game seven by 40 points, he has a quad injury. That just doesn't feel right to me. And Devin Booker was fucking horrible in game six and game seven. Like, he was just trash. So I didn't see any injury report, reports for him. So it's just an epic collapse. I'm like, I'm a little shocked by how bad it was. Like, literally one of the worst playoff losses ever. Um, but I'm really excited for the Mavs and I want to focus on that for a second. The Mavs, like, we weren't sure if they were going to get out of the first round. We weren't sure. Um, Luca missed the first three games. And even though we both thought the jazz were going to implode, if you have Luca missing three games, you probably think you lose that series. They win that go all the way back to the trade deadline. I mean, they weren't playing that well when Porzingis was on the team. Like this is a lost element of this story is that Porzingis was on this team earlier this year, having a really good year for him, but he kept dealing with injuries. So they dealt him and they actually got back Spencer Dinwiddie and Bertons. And it's been a correct move. Like it, it, they won the trade clearly. It's not even close. And now they're heading to the Western conference finals when their superstar is only 23 years old. Like it is really a Cinderella story for them too. It's hard to know where to start when you praise the Dallas Mavericks um, because <laughs> their all around defense is so incredible. Uh, Jason Kidd deserves some praise for that. I really thought he was going to be a terrible coach. He did an awful job coaching in Milwaukee, but guys seem to like him. Um, the guys that he liked seemed to like him. There were some issues with him really just berating some of the role players into hating their jobs as NBA players. Um, he is so much more calm than he was back then. And just the way that he's got this defense firing is awesome. Dorian Finney-Smith is a guy that I usually, uh, I think is pretty underrated. I think he goes really under the radar. And watching him guard Devin Booker on the perimeter, I think you need to give him a lot of credit. Um, I, I loved watching them defensively. Reggie Bullock, another dude who was excellent defensively and then hit timely threes in the games that they needed him to. Um, Luka Doncic, his playoff averages, 33 points, nine assists, eight rebounds. 
there's only one other player in the history of the NBA with a points per game average in the playoffs above 30. And it's Michael Jordan. Um, he's the, they're the only two. Michael Jordan did it in 150 some odd more playoff games, but still what Luke is doing right now is unreal. Um, and it needs to be, he needs a lot of credit. His three point shooting wasn't very efficient, but it didn't matter because he hit him when it mattered. Uh, he had a couple of stinker games and then he went six for 11 in his game seven. So I, I don't, I was blown away. I'm, I'm always blown away watching Luca because it just feels like he gets to whatever spot he wants at all times. Um, what the Suns did the first couple of games is just tire Luca out by targeting him over and over and over again defensively until the fourth quarter came and Luca had no energy. And then the Mavs decided, oh, yeah, we can do that to Chris Paul too. Um, so they did that to Chris Paul, and he was too worn down to do anything. I The, the back and forth was awesome. Yeah, and they picked on Luca those first two games, and I think Luca actually took a stand against that. I'm not calling him like he wasn't an elite defender by any stretch, but there was an uptick in effort and it was visible. Yeah. You could see that he actually gave a shit. Like he would jump up for passes and get steals and tips and stuff like that. And no longer could they really like target him all game long. Like he made a difference on the defensive end. And when you have other guys like Kleber and Finney Smith and Bullock trying their asses off, and then you get your star player to buy in too, who do you pick on? You can't, you can't pick on anyone. And it, they just suffocated the Suns from that point forward. I'm very intrigued to see how they do in the next round. Um, they, they're, it's kind of a Cinderella story, like I said, but there's something that has me buying into it. Like I just feel a level of confidence with the Mavericks at this point in time. And I guess that's a good segue to go against their opponent, the Golden State Warriors, who closed out the Memphis Grizzlies in game six. This series was kind of lame, to be honest. I didn't enjoy this game. Uh, John Morant had one of the best playoff games I've seen this year. He had a 47-point game against the Warriors in game two, but he got hurt in game three. And then from that point forward, I had no interest in this series. Um, but the Warriors, we should probably talk about them. What did you think about the Warriors' performance against the Grizzlies? It was really weird. You know, every game was so strange. Game five, they got stomped. It's a 39-point win for the Grizzlies without John Morant. Um, we said as a joke, I, I don't know if I really mean this, but we said it as a, as a joke. People have been saying it as a joke all year with all the winning that the Grizzlies do without Ja. Like, are they just as good without him? Um, and every time that came up, I thought it was stupid. And then they beat the brakes off of the Warriors in game five without Ja and with seven people in double figures, three guys scoring 21. Um, their all-around team play is awesome, and that's led by Tyus Jones as their backup point guard. He just does so well. And Taylor Jenkins is a great coach. Um, they had an actual efficient shooting night from Dylan Brooks, which doesn't happen very often. Um, I, I don't know how they stomped them so hard in game five, but then game six comes, and Clay Thompson does what he does every game six – and puts it puts the game to rest. Uh, he was eight of fourteen, I think, in from the three point line. Yeah, um, absolutely unstoppable. Steph Curry has been in a weird, like less than average version of himself this whole playoffs, and for like months before that, even. I was gonna say the whole entire season. He had that really hot stretch for the first month and a half, and then he was about to break the three point record, and ever since then, it's been a drop off. Um, 
and it hasn't risen back up. I just keep waiting for it to rise back up and for him to hit 10, 11 threes in a game. And he hasn't done it. Um, the Warriors were clearly the better team. They were always the better team. And I, I just have a lot of respect for Memphis for even winning that game five and winning it as convincingly as they did. Yeah, I want to give props to Memphis. I think Taylor Jenkins is an unbelievable coach. Like he should be there for the next however many years. Um, there is Bill Simmons has this theory. It's called the Ewing, Ewing theory with Patrick Ewing from the Knicks. And it was kind of the same thing. Like everyone knew Patrick Ewing was a Hall of Famer and like one of the best players. But when he got hurt, the Knicks were way better without him. And it kind of just made you think like, like, is he as good as we think he is type of thing? It's there's a little bit there with Ja. Like, how does your team go 20 and two in the regular season without you and then stomp the Warriors by like close to 50 when you're hurt? It, it, it is a little strange. Like, I don't know whether to give the credit to Taylor Jenkins for just really rallying his guys and like making them believe, or if it's like kind of a weird dynamic, like the team plays better without Ja. I think Ja is clearly the best player on the Memphis Grizzlies. They're clearly a more talented team when he's on the court. But I wonder if there's something there, like the ball moves more or something that I just can't see right now um, that I could dig into later, later on in the season. But me and you were talking about Steph the other day. Like, there is a weird thing going on with Steph. Last year, like, it was a ridiculous game every other day, it felt like, from Steph. Like, 44 points, like, 7 of 11 from 3, or like that 60 bomb he put up against Portland last year. Like there just hasn't been that this entire season. It, it just feels like we're, we've been waiting for him to pop. I mean, if he can do it in the Western conference finals, that would be perfect timing, but it, it does make me a little less confident in the golden state warriors, just because I haven't seen him like really dominate a game start to finish. Um, I think it's a really interesting matchup between them and the Mavericks. It is going to be really interesting because the Golden State Warriors are not a defensively minded team this season. Draymond is always Draymond. He is always one of the best defenders in basketball. But Steph, Clay, and Jordan Poole on the floor at the same time are not a good defensive trio. Clay Thompson is not the defender he was. He doesn't have the quickness. He doesn't have the, the quick steps that he used to have. Although, you know, IQ-wise, he's great. Um, just athletically, he's not the dude he used to be. Um, Jordan Poole's never been known as a good defender. He's a dude who tries, but he can't, he doesn't stay in front of people very well. Um, I don't know who they put. Actually, I do know who they put up against Luca, and it's going to be Andrew Wiggins, who deserves so much credit as a rock solid role player. Um, every single game, he you can count on him for 17 points a game always. Um, he had 17 in every single game that they won, except for the last one, he put up 18. Um, he is so consistent, man. And then at the same time, he puts in 100% effort on defense. And he is going to be a big factor in how well he can slow down Luka, how well he can make it difficult for him to get to his spots. Uh, because he's the one they're really going to be putting a lot of weight on his shoulders when it comes to guarding people in this next series. Yeah, and I, I think it's going to potentially be a slaughterhouse. Uh, I love Andrew Wiggins, actually. Like, I'm, I've become a fan of him just accepting that he's a role player. I think that's been really good for his career. Luca is just, he's Luca. Like, he's going to get his 33, 9, and 8, like we were talking about. That's just kind of, but it, it's, it depends on how efficient he is doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if Wiggins can make him shoot lower than his averages, that's a win in the Warriors book. Um, 
I think I have the Mavs winning this series in seven. I just, I don't know how they guard Luca, And I think Draymond is so terrified to shoot the basketball now. It's, it's close to Ben Simmons. It's not Ben Simmons, like, tossing the ball under the hoop, I don't think. He had a similar play, actually, but I don't think it's at that level. But I think if the Mavs, like, put Jalen Brunson on Draymond, they're not going to be too worried. Like, what do you what do you lose by doing that? What do you lose by putting a five foot eleven guy on a six four guy who doesn't feel like shooting at all? Like, I think you'll probably live with that, and then they can hide Jalen Brunson's defensive weaknesses. So I I think that's a genius game plan. I don't know if they'll do it, but that's what I would do if I was that coach. It's not a bad strategy, and at the same time, if the game plan for the Warriors is we're gonna let Draymond go off in the post, uh, like if you're the Mavs, you take that, you live with that. Um, because that's so much less damage than what Steph and Clay and Jordan Poole can do. Um, it's it's going to be a really interesting series. I'm I'm excited to see on the Dallas Mavericks end how well their defense holds up against some of the best shooters in basketball. Uh, Frank Nilakina, I'm really happy that that dude's staying in the NBA. I've always thought he was an awesome defender, and then when it just comes to, like, he just panics when the ball's in his hands and he makes dumb mistakes. When you watch him play for his team in France – uh, in the Olympics, he's incredible. He hits threes all over the place. He's confident as hell. Uh, I don't know where it all disappears when he comes back and plays for the NBA, but I'm happy that he's got a spot on this team now and he's still playing hard defense, really effective defense. Uh, I think he's a dude that's going to have to chase Steph and Clay and Jordan Poole around screens. Reggie Bullock, another dude who's played a lot of minutes, who's just going to be chasing guys around screens. Um, they do a bit of switching. It's going to be tough, man. It's, it's a good challenge for Jason Kidd. Um, they have all been pretty good challenges, and I think I've, I've been pretty impressed with the way that he's overcome every team in these series so far. Uh, this is definitely the biggest one yet. Yeah, because the Warriors run an extremely unique offense. Um, Jason Kidd has mastered how to defend the pick-and-roll offense, just the high pick-and-roll every possession down the court. He has mastered how to defend it. This is completely different. This is nonstop motion. This is running off screens. This is off ball movement from start to finish. And that is a totally different ball game. And it's not even close. Um, like the schemes on how to defend both offenses. Like they're so different from one another. You're going to have to formulate a completely new thing. Not to mention they have two of the greatest shooters of all time. And a third guy who can absolutely destroy you in Jordan Poole and just put 30 on your head. So Absolutely, this is going to be an interesting series to watch. I think I got Mavs in seven. Who, who are you picking? I've, I've been hesitant to give my vote because I really have no idea. Um, just for the Cinderella story of it all, I'll take Mavs in seven with you. This is going to be a battle of guards. Uh, Draymond Green is a sick big man. The Mavs have some all right guys. Maxi Kleba and Dwight Powell are awesome role players, but this will really come down to which trio of guards is going to be most effective. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about the draft lottery. That's tonight. All right. And now we're going to talk about the draft lottery tonight. Me and Ben have been waiting for this for weeks now. This is like one of our favorite things to do. I know both of us are always on Tankathon, just rap, rattling off random uh, lotteries. Um, so let's talk about some teams we want to see do well tonight. Um, obviously, every team has different odds on whether they will shoot up the board or shoot down the board. Who's a team you're looking forward to seeing jumping up? 
I I root for the long the long shots. I root for the guys towards the bottom um, to get ridiculously lucky. And the team that I would love to see really rise up is New Orleans. Um, they have the Lakers pick, and the odds right now put them at about eighth. Um, the odds that they're going to be top ten are very high. The odds that they're top four is twenty six percent, which you know is not great. But if you're a gambling man, that's not bad odds to be honest. Um, I'd love nothing more than to see them get some really, really good player in the top five to pair with Zion when he comes back next year. And then they're just one of the most young, most exciting young teams in basketball. Um, Realistically, I don't know that it's going to happen. I'm excited for where OKC lands. I think that's the the team that has a really realistic shot at the number one odds that I want to see do well. Yeah, I think OKC is like on the cusp. I think if they do get the number one overall pick, they'll still be trash next year. But we need to see some steps forward from them. They have Shagulch's Alexander, who's basically an all-star caliber player. Um, and they have good role players around them. And they just drafted Josh Giddy, who is a success. Like whatever way you want to look at his season, it was a success. Um, he has obviously things to improve on, but he was he lived up to the pick. And we weren't sure he was going to at the time. So um, I would like to see them do well. A team I'm really rooting for is also the New Orleans Pelicans. For the same exact reasons you said, it would be so cool to see them pair another like top three pick on that team after just an unbelievable postseason run. Um, Another team I want to see, though, is New York. Um, And I know you're not with me on this one. I want to see the Knicks get like a top two pick. I just feel like that franchise is cursed, man. And like that fan base is so damn loyal. They've just had to watch trash for like the last 50 years or so. I think it would just be cool if they could have like Paolo in the building or Chet in the building, like someone who you would want to buy their jersey. Because like right now it's RJ Barrett as your top option. And I think he's a glorified role player. Um, I know, I think you have higher opinions of him than I do, but I think he's just a career role player. And like everyone in MSG is sporting number nine jerseys. I just think it's a little funny. Um, Another team I want to see do well is Indiana. Um, Indiana, because I love Tyrese Halliburton. I know you love Tyrese Halliburton and Miles Turner is coming back. And if they can pair someone alongside Miles Turner, Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, they could make their way back into the play in conversation with Rick Carlisle as their head coach. I don't think it's plausible, but if you add Chet next to Miles Turner, that defense instantly gets better. Or if you add Paolo next to Tyrese Halliburton, that offense gets instantly better. So I think there are ways for them to drastically improve next year. And I would just, I want the Pacers to be more watchable because it's been widespread known that they had the lowest attendance in the league last year. No one wanted to watch their games. And I feel like if you bring an exciting young player into basketball country, Indiana, like the fans will go crazy again and hopefully they're more entertaining to watch. So those are some teams I'm looking at. I uh, I think the R.J. Barrett slander is insane. Calling him a glorified role player, I think that that is like top tier slander. He's, a um, he's 24 years old and he has not stopped improving every month of his NBA career practically. 
Um, he's actually ambidextrous now. He can score with both hands on the inside. Um, I don't care that you're shaking your head. He is a far better basketball player with his opposite hand than he has been throughout his career. Um, he's improved constantly. Um, Indiana, I would like to see them draft Jabari Smith. Uh, they've got a top-tier playmaker, Tyrese Halliburton. If they can get a guy who can just catch and shoot, um, that'll be a key to them offensively doing a lot better because their offense sucks. It's not fun to watch. Um, realistically, there's still a very, very good chance that Houston, Orlando, and Detroit end up with the number one pick, and I don't want any of them to get it. Um, the thought of the Orlando Magic drafting some high ceiling potential guy in Chet Holmgren and then just not developing him because they don't know how to develop talent and then he's never the dude we want him to be. There's nothing I want to see less than that. Um, so Orlando and Sacramento are the two teams that I want to fall as far in the draft lottery as they can. Yeah, mine is Houston, like, and by far Houston. I think the way they're running their franchise right now is sickening to me. Um, they openly brought in KPJ, who's just one of the worst teammates in the league, and Christian Wood, who's also just a horrible teammate. And the culture is try to shoot as many times as you want, just don't play defense. That's their culture there. And I think that it just, I don't know, I don't love it. I don't love the owner. Um, they got horrible returns on the James Harden trade. Like it's just bad move after bad move after bad move. And I just feel like, even though I love Sengun and I really like Jalen Green, I just feel like I don't want to see them get rewarded for what they did last year. Like there's something a part of me that's just like, that feels icky to me. Um, another team I just don't want to see well is Washington or like you said, Sacramento. Sacramento with the Tyrese Halliburton trade. They, I think I'm positive they have the worst ownership group in the league. Like they just make countless mistake after countless mistake. I feel bad for the fans, but like the ownership does not deserve to land one of these top three guys. And for Washington, I don't know. They're, they're just so mediocre to me every season. Washington is very boring. Um, Kristaps looks like this is a good home for him. You know, if they get a fun guard, maybe a good scoring guard, um, Jaden Ivy, who knows? I don't expect them to go that high. Um, but I mean, that would be amazing for them if they could get Jaden Ivy. Cause that was, a, that would be a dude who would bring watchability from day one. Um, I don't know. Dyson Daniels, Benedict Matherin are possible names. I want Benedict Matherin to go to a team that really matters uh, or, you know, a team that he can get his minutes. Um, I, I don't really like Washington. They weren't a fun team to watch this year, although they've got some interesting guys. Uh, I, I'm not sure really how I feel about Houston. Because uh, you're right. They did suck this year and they've made lots and lots of bad decisions, but they sucked with a healthy lineup for the most part. They're not sitting guys. Um, they're just playing the players that they have on their roster. And those players aren't good enough to win basketball games. Um, Steven Silas, I would like to see him get the chance to coach a good team. Um, I don't want to see Chet go to the Rockets, but if they go third and they get somebody like Paolo, that could be pretty good for them. Um, what's the team What's the player that you're most excited to see go to a good organization? I think it's Chet. And we'll talk about this on our mock draft whenever that comes out, our first mock draft. But for me, 
even though I've moved him in my rankings, to me, he still has the highest ceiling. And like by a decent margin, um, if he goes to a good organization who's going to take their time with him and make sure they like further along all of his skill set, he will be an NBA all-star. If he goes to the Houston Rockets, he's just going to be a really good shot blocker and a guy who can pass and shoot threes. Like he's going to be a really, really good player, but I think he has like multiple time all-star potential. And I feel like a good organization that could groom him. That would be best for his career. What, what organization are you most excited to see Chet go to? I think Indiana would be a good call. Put him at the four with Miles Turner at the five. Big man who's already sitting in the paint blocking shots. That could probably work out. I think if I had to choose an organization for him to go to, it might be Portland or Detroit. Um, Both good names. Both good calls. Because he goes to Portland and he's with Damian Lillard from his rookie year. Dame can teach him how to be an NBA superstar. Chauncey Billups even though we didn't love that hire, like he was a very good NBA player. So he knows how to create habits and instill habits in players. And then for Detroit, he's paired with Cade Cunningham for the next decade of his career. Like, I don't know if you can get much better than that. So I think those would be my two organizations I'd like to see him land. Detroit's on the come up. If they get a top three pick, uh, I expect them to be really competitive next season. I don't know if it's enough for a play-in. Okay. Um, but I know that's enough to make most games close. I know that they're going to play with a lot of effort. I really liked what I saw from Marvin Bagley on the Pistons. Seriously. Um, and if Chet starts his career coming off the bench and letting him do some work, I mean, it's fine. Chet will overtake that spot eventually. They're um, not, no matter where Chet goes, he's not coming off the bench. There's no way. I'm just a little concerned for him defensively when you've got to pull him out to the perimeter. No, I, I just don't know what, what, what to expect against NBA caliber players. Um, his wingspan's awesome. His lateral quickness isn't like really good for a seven footer. Um, it's fine, you know, but he's still slow and they're still going to do a lot of drop coverage. I don't know what to expect from Chet his rookie year. I feel like he's one of the dudes who's going to have a slow start. I think he's going to lead all rookies in blocks. You can just guarantee yeah. it. I think he's going to be an above average defender his first year. There's going to be weaknesses. Like you said, he doesn't have, like, we're going to hear this endlessly and it's going to drive me fucking crazy. He's going to get a lot of Evan Mobley uh, comparisons and his foot speed is nowhere close. His foot speed is closer to Rudy Gobert. And when we think of him as a defender, you should think Rudy Gobert like has weaknesses, but he can be the top of the top in terms of blocking shots. Um, offensively as a rookie that's what I'm interested in um is it just alley-oops like alley-oops and corner threes is that his shot diet for his entire rookie year like that would that would be a little disappointing to me if that's what he was reduced down to um and I talked to Nate Moskowitz our good friend here at the podcast about this on an Instagram live in high school Chet was like doing double dribbles behind the back and hitting moving threes around screens in high school like as the primary ball handler that's what he was doing and then when he went to Gonzaga they just stripped him of all of it and made him basically a pick and roll player and a transition pull-up three player and I just don't want that to happen again in the NBA like instead of just like looking at his skills in high school and making him flourish like I don't want them to just keep minimizing his game as an offensive player I I'm with you a hundred percent he should go to a team 
if he's going to go to a bad team, um, that team should let him do whatever he wants, practically. If you already are not really that interested in the win column, uh, let Che take the ball up. Let him run the pick and roll as the facilitator. Let him try everything offensively because he is he has so many skills. Um, I think he'll be one of the better transition three-point shooters in the NBA a couple of years into his career because um, that's a skill he's always had. But it might end up being a thing where it's like you watch Andre Drummond doing pro-am games and he is doing those dribble moves. He's going between guys' legs. He's doing, you know, between the legs, spin move, three-pointers, and he's hitting them like it's nothing. It could just be a thing where when you're that much better than the average competition you're playing against, you can do whatever the hell you want. I know, and that's what's so interesting about Chet to me is because I think the ceiling is so freaking high. Like, if those dribble moves are for real and, the like, the shooting off screens is for real, Then you have a seven footer who's going to be one of the best shot blockers in the entire league who can also ball handle pass and shoot off screens. That's one of the most unique players in the league. Like you can't find that every draft. Um, So he's definitely the one I'm keeping my eye on. Who's a player that you want to see go to like a good organization. Um, We've talked a lot about the best of the best, but I'm going to go a little lower in the draft and say AJ Griffin. Um, I think he'll be, it really depends on what team is in the five, six, seven spot. Um, because if you drop him on a team that's mostly got itself figured out and they just need extra role players to come in, hit shots, and play okay defense, AJ Griffin will be perfect. I think that rookie year, he's going to be the best shooter at this draft. I'm not sure a couple of years down the line. We have no idea what Shaden Sharp's going to be. Uh, Chet Holmgren's ceiling is unimaginable. Jabari, Paolo, these guys' ceilings are hard to even fathom right now. But right out the gate, A.J. Griffin is going to be the best three-point shooter. And I think if he goes to a team like Portland, you know, as much as they would want a top three pick, they'll be happy with A.J. Griffin. I love that fit for him. That is one of my favorite fits for him. Um, Just three-point shooting and defense. He's not, like, in college, he was an okay defender. Like, he's not going to be a good NBA defender right away. But if he can get decent by the end of his rookie season, I expect Portland to try to make a playoff push next year if Dame's fully healthy and they have a ton of money to spend in free agency. Like, they should be trying to make the postseason. So he could maybe be contributing like Zaire Williams is to the Grizzlies or was to the Grizzlies his rookie year. I, th- I would love if he landed there. I think that would be such a great fit for him. He's not a home run swing the way that like Shaden Sharp is. Yeah. Um, and I, I certainly, I respect whatever team takes that home run swing. Shaden Sharp, me and you disagree a bit on where he falls on our big boards. And it's not because I've not been impressed out of what I've watched from him. It's just that we didn't see him play in Kentucky. Uh, we watched him crush all American ball. We watched him crush it in high school. Uh, but the transition is going to be steep for him. I, I'm excited for a team that falls fifth or sixth and decides, you know what, we're taking that swing. Um, because if they develop him, if they take the time, it'll probably work out pretty well. Yeah, I'm fairly confident in Shaden Sharp. I think when you hear number one overall recruit, that means something to me. Um, like we think about the former ones like 
RJ Barrett was the former number one overall. He's a role player. Like their ceilings are so much higher than other draft picks, in my opinion, if you were the number one overall player in your high school class. Like Harry Giles is the worst example of this, but that's because of injury. Like he was going to be a good NBA player. He just had like four knee surgeries in like two years. Um, I'm I'm fairly confident that Shaden Sharp's ceiling is higher than most of the prospects that I put behind him, even though he hasn't played anything at Kentucky. Yeah, it's really the sort of thing where if you're picking for fit and if you're picking for like, I need you to be impactful right away, probably won't go with Shaden Sharp. Um, But if you can afford to take a year, if Orlando happens to fall a little bit, uh, like to five or six, they should take Shaden Sharp. Yeah, I agree. I think when teams, if their draft position is lower than they expect, just swing for the fences. Like if you're Detroit and you're expecting to get the number one or two pick and you fall to five, you have to select Shade and Sharp, in my opinion. You get Kate a backcourt partner for the next decade. And you, like, it's okay if Shade and Sharp makes mistakes all year long because you weren't going to win anyway. So I agree with you 100%. That's definitely right. Uh, I want to go to the bottom of the lottery and talk about your Cleveland Cavs. Uh, yeah. They have a very, very low chance of ending up anywhere other than 14th. Um, at the end of the lottery there, is there a name that you're just begging falls to 14 and they get to scoop them up? So I am now locked in on three players for the Cavs. Patrick Baldwin Jr., former number six overall recruit in high school and just made the worst decision ever to play for his dad in college. Dyson Daniels, G League guard, six foot eight, very good passer, can score off the dribble going to the hoop and he can defend multiple positions. And Ochai Akbaji is how you say his name, but he's just a versatile scorer. Um, he played for Kansas, was a senior there. So he's, I feel like he's going to be a good player right away just because he improved every year in college. So those are kind of the guys I'm super locked in on. I love Jeremy Sochan, but the more I've thought about it, you can't add another non-shooter to the Cavs because they have Mobley, who's not a shooter right now, and Jared Allen, who literally does not attempt any shots outside of 10 feet. So those are the three guys I'm eyeballing. I like Agbaji. I think that that would be pretty cool. Um, He ended his senior year shooting 41% from three, um, and he made big plays for him, man. Like, we watched him all throughout March Madness. Um, He would be a winner. He would come to the – he's the sort of culture guy that I think would fit really well in Cleveland. Dyson Daniels, I would be surprised if he fell that far. Um, I think he's probably a 10 or 11 pick. Um, yeah, they, what they really need is a wing who can shoot shooting guard, small forward. If you can shoot the ball, well, the Cavs should look at drafting them. Um, yeah, I would love to see Agbaji. I think, I think there's a good chance he's available too. Yeah, I think so. I think his age alone will push him down the, down the draft board. So if the Cavs can scoop him up, that would be amazing. Um, just another late lottery pick that we can maybe talk about or hope happens is Mark Williams to the Hornets, I think would be fantastic just because we've talked about this forever. They need a center so bad. And last year, I think they whiffed with Kai Jones uh, props for them for trading up for him. But I mean, so raw, such a raw player. Um, you, I'm a little shocked. They didn't see that coming. Mark Williams seems like more of a sure thing to me. So that's another late lottery thing. I'm keeping my eye on. Mark Williams to the Hornets would be great. It's a shame that James Borrego got fired. 
it's a shame that they blamed him. It's a thing that teams do all the time where your team sucks and the first one to go is always the coach. Doesn't matter what the team situation is. Um, but if they fired James Borrego because their defense wasn't good enough and because their big men weren't good enough, it's, it's a shame because that is the biggest flaw with the Hornets right now. Um, Mark Williams would be good, man. I, I had been down on him for a little bit, but now that I see just his athleticism and his IQ defensively, um, that is absolutely what the Hornets need. They have been lacking that for so long. They're already entertaining as hell with the guards and the forwards, man. Um, the defense isn't always there, but you could put Mark Williams in a not Rudy Gobert role, but like we're just going to force as many shots to the paint as we can. Um, right. And I think he would do that pretty well. Jalen Duran would be a little bit more of a home run swing for them. And I don't know that I like them taking it just because they just grabbed Kai Jones. Um and it, I, it would be dumb to do two kind of home run swings with bigs in a row. Jalen Duran's got a much higher floor than Kai Jones. Um, I'm excited for where Jalen Duran ends up. He's another guy. The ceiling is really, really impressive, but the floor is very, very low. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, draft lottery tonight. I believe it happens at 830? 8 o'clock. 830 is the Celtics. Gotcha. So, me and you will definitely be paying attention to that. Um, just on one final note, RJ Barrett, player who has improved every year, shot 40% from the floor last year. Did he really? Uh, yeah. He, I mean, I'm telling you, Knicks fans, give up on him, please. Um, I think he's a winning player, but as like a number one or even two or maybe even three guy, I think that is just way, it's very hopeful. It's wishful thinking. Maybe it is. Uh, his three-point number dipped a lot last season. Um, the arenas. Yeah. I mean, also Julius Randle decided that he was just going to tank this, this season for the Knicks. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think all of their numbers look a little worse than they should just because of how ass Julius Randle decided to be. Um, but maybe I was going a little too hard with the R.J. Barrett love. I got to see an RJ Barrett stink fest live at MSG. That was a very interesting experience, but um, I do, I like him as a player. I think he's a winning player, but like the, f- the fact that Knicks fans are like packing arenas full of nine number nine jerseys, that's pretty depressing to me. Like that's a pretty sad reality for Knicks fans. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it would be cool of them to get, like a top five pick. If they brought Jaden Ivey into the building, I think that would be pretty awesome for them. I think that's a place where he would fit perfectly. The garden would go insane for him. Oh yeah. So many big time shots. All right. I think that's going to wrap everything up. Thank you guys for listening. Ben, do we have anything else to say or can we get out of here? I got nothing. Thanks everybody. Peace.